and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Nate. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Good. We have an announcement from our producer, Matt Wilson, who's going to come on and tell us some stuff. You ready for it? I'm ready for it. All right. Let's do it. Wilson. Hey, everyone. Uh, Useful Idiots has some big news. We are officially truthing. We, uh, we got accepted on Truth Social. We talked a couple of weeks ago how we were 401 on the waiting list, but now we are officially in and check this out. We can share it with you. So here it looks exactly like Twitter. <laughs> um, wow. the, the Truth Social account doesn't want you to say tweet or, or Twitter. They want you to only say truth. So I've been tweeting a lot. If you tweet or sorry. You've been truthing a lot. I've been truthing a lot. You can compose truth. Everything looks the same, but it's just called truth. <laughs> So, so you write out your truth. So you're, you're, you get, you compose the truth. And then once you've written your truth, you, tr you truth it. Yeah. You truth it. You and then you truth. can retruth it. I retruthed Donald Trump saying retruth. Re if you think this guy should hashtag truth a whole lot more. And people are, are really catching on. We have three likes already with, wow. <laughs> with, all, with two followers. And this just started this morning. So follow at useful idiot pod. If you're accepted onto truth social and we are going to shout the truth. If you're not accepted on Truth Social, that means you can't handle the truth. Yeah, exactly. You can't <laughs> handle the truth, right? You're not ready for it. You're not ready for it, yeah. So good luck, everyone. I hope you're accepted onto it. And yeah. if not, you can't handle the truth, and that's on, that's on you. Yeah. We're about to become truth famous. Well, that's exciting. What an exciting yeah. way to kick off uh, so this, this week. And yeah. if you can make it on, everybody, join us over there. Yeah. Should we get to the four food groups? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get to the four food groups. So we got Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? I got Dems this week. This week we got some great news, some great suckage from uh, Mayor Eric Adams. And he has announced his plan to get rid of encampments, i.e. purge unhoused people. Uh, he made this announcement first. Uh, he camps up. He first announced it at a fundraiser for APAC in front of millionaires and billionaires. Uh, but then he spoke about it again on Friday and here he is talking about it. Let's just play this video of him talking, making his announcement. I inherited a dysfunctional city. <laughs> what, what, what more can I say? My city is dysfunctional and taxpayers deserve better. And just from a logistical standpoint, how many encampments are you aware of? How many have been looked at to this point? Uh, we, I believe the number was 180. We want to give a full profile of exactly uh, the encampments. Uh, I believe tomorrow we're going to be giving a full profile. And you have, to, you have to see some of these encampments. And you have to see the difference of just removing an encampment what it did for that entire block. You know, I'm just really proud that we were able to do it. I made a commitment. And I lived up to the commitment and our city is going to finally see, yes, we can. He's really proud of himself for making a commitment to quote unquote cleaning up, you know, to use a major euphemism for um, removing the people and, and property from the encampments, which are kind of makeshift um, shelters that people are making outside. He's very proud of himself for going after them. He thinks this is a yes, we can moment. It makes such a difference for these blocks, for these, for the, for the streets. Notice he's emphasizing what a difference it makes, not for the people uh, living there, but for the people, I guess, walking up and down the streets, having to observe these streets. He also wants the taxpayers, you know, they deserve better. So this is all about taxpayers. 
you know, he did promise in a vague way. He promised to provide the, the people that he's basically evicting. Uh, he's promising to provide them with healthy living conditions, which is nice, but it's not exactly encouraging because last month he did a similar quote unquote cleanup and he removed um, 1,000 unhoused people who were sleeping on the subway. And only 22 of those people were relocated into shelters, which kind of brings up the question, well, why why are people not going to shelters, right? Because what Adams is saying and other people who treat the unhoused this way is, are, are suggesting is like, what's wrong with these people? Why aren't they going to shelters? We're just trying to help them by p forcing them into shelters. And Adam Johnson actually did a great piece on this at his uh, Substack, The Column, where he challenges the media to even cover this. But... Uh, as he writes, uh, shelters are more often than not less safe than the streets. They abide by strict absence type standards. Our places of abuse don't allow pets, divide families, uh, and enforce a strict dehumanizing regime of rules that are difficult for most housing and secure people to follow. But above all, shelters are not what the homeless actually need. They're not stable, secure housing. And in fact, it should be pointed out that, uh, not surprisingly, uh, Eric Adams had a huge donor ship uh donor based from the real estate industry raked in more campaign cash than any of the other 2021 uh, mayoral candidates and uh did very well especially among uh the real estate industry he he compared himself to broccoli apparently the other day he said like you're not gonna like you don't like me now but you'll like me later i like broccoli now and later so i don't really think that that works but uh, you're going to hate me now, but you're going to love me later. That's what he's saying. I'm not sure that that applies to people who have had their shelters and their belongings um, thrown away. And in fact, we have a video of people's belongings being um, taken away. This is, this is photo video by Carla Cote, by the way. And of course, it's in New York City where this is happening. There you see that their belongings are being squished in the, in the sanitation truck. So yeah, that's our mayor. That's tough. That's really, really tough. And it's really cold out, by the way, if you're not here in New York City right now. During COVID, back when we still treated COVID like a thing, it's kind of, we're supposed to forget about it now, right. basically. But did, there was a big expansion of using hotels to house the unhoused right that was a big thing and now it seems like that program is being whittled down yeah it's uh it's no longer a priority covid is no longer really being discussed we live in a post-covid world apparently and um i think that yeah the, i mean the the unhoused are often treated obviously as a very expendable community and so I think that the further away we get from COVID, the more we're going to see that kind of come back. And it's pretty scary. And it's very cold out. And even if it weren't cold out, it would be scary. And of course, you know, a focus on affordable housing would be the thing to invest in. But that's not really in the interest of big real estate. So we're not going to be seeing that. It's very scary, like seeing what's happening here to the unhoused and seeing what's happening in LA to the unhoused. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's like there's no there's no serious strategy at the local or federal level. And part of that stems from a refusal to sufficiently tax the ultra wealthy so that we can afford to house the unhoused people. But it's like given that 
everything is sort of just being the ex, the the temporary solution than appears to be. And again, I have limited knowledge because I don't follow this too closely. But my reading is the it appears to be the plan is basically push people to the margins as far as possible, take the, you know tear down their encampments, hope they go away, and just pray for the best. But it seems like as more people are pushed into poverty, destitution in this awful economy, made worse, I think, by the proxy war that the Biden administration is waging against Russia, which will raise inflation and energy prices, that it's like basically the the hope is that it doesn't reach a boiling point where enough desperate people don't just rise up because they have no other option and just hope people can be pushed away to the margins, having their encampments torn down and hope they don't cause a stir. But how long can that last? Because it just seems like the ranks of the and how is they're growing and the solution is just to keep tearing down their encampments it just doesn't seem like this is sustainable and it seems like we're setting ourselves up for something kind of apocalyptic yeah i mean i think that that's true and i think that as you said the hope is just to get people out of out of sight out of mind you know they can either move get them out of the city make it so it's so terrible here that they have to find you know live in other places some cities will send people give people one-way bus tickets so that they just get out of dodge so to speak um of course some people will die it's awful this is kind of a downer of a democrat suck but that's why they suck that's why they suck because they do stuff like this onto republican this one for republican suck it's sort of republican suck slash are awesome depending on your perspective right it comes from Re- republican congress member madison cawthorn oh, i love him who gave an interview this week where he he dropped a bombshell on what it's like to be a Republican Congress member in Washington. Oh my God, his hat. Uh, aside from that, I mean, the sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington with the average age of probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes, you should come. And I'm like, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. Uh, and then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild. Wow. I didn't know it was so fun to be a Republican. Yeah, so while Democrats are tearing down homeless encampments, Republicans apparently in Washington are going to orgies and doing bumps of uh, of coke right and uh, people's naked bodies yeah uh and he got in trouble for this some republicans are mad at him and kevin mccarthy the house speaker apparently reprimanded he wants to be invited but he wants to speak he reprimanded madison cawthorn publicly but i thought that was uh I mean, first of all, I mean, Republicans, I mean, if what he's saying is true, it speaks to the Republican hypocrisy in being, you know, uh, family values, moralists and trying to push policies that criminalize homelessness and addiction while simultaneously engaging in behavior like that, including 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 drug consumption. But proper to Madison Cawthorn for exposing it. Yeah, seriously. Speaking truth to power, he should put that on to. Truth. Yeah. What's it called? Truth Social. Yeah. Truth Social. Yeah. That's the truth. That belongs on Truth Social. Yeah. He'll probably get censored on Truth Social for that because it's a it's a Republican controlled website. But and the fact that there's still there's orgies going on. I just found that really funny. Like who goes to orgies 
anymore. Like, is that is that still a thing? Apparently. <laughs> well, anyway, so Republicans suck, except for in this one instance, Madison Cawthorn for exposing them. So for speaking truth, yeah, yeah, for speaking truth, bumping truth to power. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's not naming names, though. They're asking him to name names. No, well, that would probably go too far. But he should, though. He, he said should. it. He should. Why not? So let's go to Isn't That Weird? And for Isn't That Weird? Oh, this is kind of a cute story. It's a cute. It's weird, but it's kind of cute. And it's there are a couple of notable parts of it. So scientists reading the L.A. Times, scientists find octopus ancestor that predates dinosaurs. OK, and they name it after someone. I'm not going to tell you who they name it after yet. Scientists have found the oldest known ancestor of octopuses as an approximately 330 million year old fossil unearthed in Montana. The researchers concluded that the ancient creature lived millions of years earlier than previously believed, meaning that octopuses originated before the era of dinosaurs. The 4.7 inch fossil has 10 limbs. Modern octopuses have eight, each with two rows of suckers. It probably lived in shallow tropical ocean bay. It's very rare to find soft tissue fossils, except in a few places, said Mike Vecchioni, a Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History zoologist who was not involved in the study. This is a very exciting finding. It pushes back the ancestry much farther than previously known. The specimen was discovered in Montana's Bear Gulch limestone formation and donated to the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada in 1988. It's it's a nice American-Canadian cooperation, much like we see between the two hosts on the show that you're watching. For decades, the fossil sat overlooked in a drawer while scientists studied fossil sharks and other finds from the site. Which, by the way, pause, that just speaks to the stronghold that Big Shark has on so many industries, from Hollywood to science and research. Sharkaganda is a powerful thing, and we almost lost in a very important discovery because Big Shark was being centered as usual. Luckily though, uh, paleontologists noticed the 10 tiny limbs encased in limestone. The well-preserved fossil also shows some evidence of an ink sac, probably used to squirt out a dark liquid cloak to help to evade predators, just like modern octopuses. The creature, a vampiropod, was likely the ancestor of both modern octopuses and vampire squid, a confusingly named marine critter that's much closer to an octopus than a squid. Previously, the oldest known definitive vampiropod was from around 240 million years ago. The scientists named the fossil Silipsimopodi bideni after President Biden. Whether or not an ancient octopus or vampire squid bearing your name is actually a compliment, the scientists say they intended admiration for the president's science and research priorities. So we got a Joe Biden octopus fossil. I don't know if I'd be flattered or not. Yeah, would you be flattered if you were named after Especially because that creature, I don't know. He is, I just realized. I, I mean, yeah. it is it is flattering to be named after something, even if it's a to have something named after you. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. I'm sold. You're I'm sold. sold. That's weird, right? It's weird to name it Joe Biden. I mean, <laughs> if I were Biden, weird. I guess I'd want to. I'd pretend that it was because I was taking had a lot on my plate. Uh-huh. I was doing a lot of things at the same time, right? Like I need ten <laughs> hands to do it. <laughs> exactly. He's so busy. Not and so I, efficient, I'd so, think that so effective in so effective. handling all of his multiple tasks. Right. So many balls in the air. I would not want to think it's because I'm very old. Yeah. Or yeah. a fossil. <laughs> all right. So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a story out of the UK, everybody. Weddings can be stressful, but this takes it to a new level. 
And the headline is from the uh, UK Mirror, bridegroom and best man spend wedding night in jail after mass brawl with mom. Newlyweds Claire and Eamon Goodbrand from Uddingston, South Lanarkshire, spent the night in handcuffs in separate cells after the bride attacked her own mother. A newlywed couple spent their first night as a married couple in a wedding cell after their celebrations descended into chaos and a violent brawl broke out. The bridegroom and best man were all arrested after the bride attacked her own mother at the reception in Bathgate, Scotland. The mayhem began when Claire Goodbrand, 26, violently attacked and and injured her mum, Cherry Ann Lindsay, erupting into a large scuffle where the groom and best man weighed in. New husband, Eamon Goodbrand, and his brother, Kieran, their best man, joined the fracas, viciously assaulting wedding guest David Boyd and leaving him severely injured, a court has heard. The best man also attacked and injured another guest before police arrived to break up the brawl. Officers took the wedding party trio away in cuffs and were remanded in custody in separate cells before appearing in court. When they were finally released from custody, Claire was wearing what appeared to be her going away outfit while the groom and best man were dressed in prison issue Primark tracksuits, still wearing their mud-stained wedding shoes. Professional fighter, oh my God, Eamon's a professional fighter. Yeah, that's, I mean, this explains a lot, right? Oh, so he brought his profession into the wedding. Mm-hmm. That is bad news. Who was sporting a head injury when he was freed, gave an address, as did his 26-year-old wife and his 28-year-old brother. Closed circuit TV footage, which reportedly captured the fight spilling out of the wedding venue onto the line outside, persuaded the trio's legal team to negotiate guilty pleas to a reduced number of charges. Wow. Well, there what a, a wedding, huh? Fa- someone's lost a finger, or part of a finger, too. Wow, someone lost a finger. Claire Goodbrand pled guilty on indictment to assault to injury, but not guilty to a serious assault to severe injury. She admitted repeatedly seizing her mother by the hair, punching and kicking her on the head and body, causing her to fall to the ground before striking her head at the wedding venue. She also admitted punching and kicking her mom, Cherry Ann, to the head and body while on the ground, striking her on the head with a shoe and seizing her by the neck and restricting her breathing. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? What a nightmare. I mean, so much to learn here. First of all, maybe don't. If you're going to marry a, a professional fighter. You got to leave that at home, right? Leave it at home. And also, or, or bring a referee into the wedding. Bring a referee. That's good. You're right. Mm-hmm. That, that, that should be who officiates. Exactly. The referee should officiate the wedding. That's exactly right. That's, that, that's to me, the key takeaway. Have a yeah. professional referee there to officiate your wedding for the formal wedding part, but also in case a massive brawl breaks out. Right. What, now, what we don't know, and we're going to have to turn back to this, you know, do a follow-up reporting on this, is what the hell made this happen? Yeah. What do you think it was? They're British, so maybe some, like, blood sausage was involved? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting theory. Spotted dick, maybe? Yeah. Do you mind if I read a little bit more? Sure, yeah, please. Yeah. Eamon and Kieran both pled guilty to repeatedly punching and kicking David Boyd on the head and body while acting together. The charge states that they caused him to fall to the ground and continued their violent attack as he lay there. They admitted during their they admitted pushing their thumbs into Mr. Boyd's eyes, biting him on the head and body, and repeatedly seizing him by the neck and restricting his breathing, all to his severe injury. 
In addition, uh, Kieran Goodbrand admitted assaulting Jerry Brown by punching and kicking him on the head and body. Uh, a fourth member of the family, a 37-year-old Brendan Goodbrand, had his not guilty pleas to two assault charges accepted by the Crown after his alibi that he had left the venue before the trouble uh, broke out turned out to be true. Okay, so one person has been exonerated. Uh, it was reported after the wedding reception that one of the alleged victims lost part of a finger during the attack. Well, look, weddings also can be very boring. So at least this was, this was pretty exciting. Yeah, you're right. That is, yeah, wedding. That's that's good. I wonder. Uh, that's like a wedding that's worth it. That's worth mm. the 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 investment because you got to buy a gift. That's right. This is you gotta buy a gift, especially you if you're a fighter. Especially, especially if you're a fighting fan. I mean, this is like right. You know. And especially what if what if the wedding was taking place during a big fight you were mad about missing? Well, you kind of got the next best thing. Yeah, you got the next best. Probably the actually the best the better, better thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, better thing. Well, let's send our best wishes. To, let's send our congratulations to the bride and groom. First, no our congratulations. Of, yeah, yeah. No amount of fighting can spoil your big day, even if you that. got right. arrested and spent it in prison. And let's hope the mother is okay too. And yeah, seriously, I wonder how she feels about it about their yeah. union. Yeah. Probably I not going to get invited to the anniversary party. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Maybe to the divorce party. Yeah. All right. Well, those are that that's been the four basic food groups. Well, I feel um, nourished. That was I feel a, nourished. Yeah. 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 And uh I'm gonna be uh training for the next wedding I get invited to, just in case Seriously. I need to throw down, you know. Yeah. <sighs> so we're so excited about today's guest. Tell us who he is, Aaron. Yeah, we have with us Lawrence Wilkerson. He is a retired US Army Colonel served as the chief of staff to Colin Powell. And since leaving the Bush administration, he's been outspoken in speaking out against US wars, including the wars that were waged under his administration, namely the Iraq war, and has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to US foreign policy. And he's now currently a professor at the College of William and Mary, and we're very excited to speak to him. Lawrence Wilkerson, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Aaron. As we're speaking right now, peace talks between Russia and Ukraine are still ongoing, and there's conflicting claims coming out of both sides. Some people are saying there's progress. Others are saying that there's not. What's your assessment of where things stand right now in this war, more than one month into it? Realize that with regard to your specific question, uh, I'm listening to a lot of rumors, but I do have a few contacts uh, that I trust both in the Pentagon and at state. And I think Zelensky is using, as I would be doing if I were he, his relationship with NATO and more so with Washington to put pressure on what might be blooming talks. So he says things like, you're not giving me enough support. I need more things. I need jets. I need this. I need that. But most of that is to put pressure on the coming negotiations, which I hear have been aired on both sides and both sides have more or less agreed. I don't know if I'm talking about Putin, and I don't know if I'm, I, I think I'm talking about Zelensky, but I might not be talking about Putin, at least probably talking about Lavrov, have agreed that, okay, we can sit down. These are negotiable. Um, and if that's the case, then we're to the point where that's exactly what we should do. And is it your sense that the outcome of this war is basically going to be something uh, like a resolution that could have been reached very easily yes avoid it you know basically keeping ukraine neutral that that's going to be the the major outcome of this something that could have prevented the war to begin with 
Yes. About the time Victoria Newland made her impolitic remark and it got advertised, I and a number of other people were asked for our views. And we said, I use the phrase studied neutrality. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounded good. And that was my recommendation for Ukraine. Um, no NATO, uh, no EU at the moment, no Russia. Come to a modus vivendi with both. Um, no arms, no fighting. Get rid of the people in the, as best as possible who are uh, disturbing you out in your eastern provinces, mostly neo-Nazis, uh, backed by the CIA in the United States. Um, and be neutral. Just be neutral. Uh, 15, 20 years of this studied neutrality, uh, if necessary. Um, I think that's probably what Ukraine is probably going to have to lose sovereignty over some of its southern coast on the Black Sea, certainly over the initially disputed oblast in the east, um, and maybe one or two other aspects of what Russia has done and now holds quite, quite steadily. Uh, but at the same time, I think Zelensky should be able and Washington should be able to give some things too, like recognition, uh, implicit recognition of Putin's sovereignty over Russia's sovereignty over Crimea, and perhaps one or two other things that uh, maybe you could do that in exchange for Putin's recognition of Kosovo. You know, he's never recognized Kosovo as an independent entity. Um, but there are ways. There are ways to do this and to come out with reasonable sovereignty and independence and statehood for Ukraine, maybe a little bit of dumb braided, and to satiate Putin's desires, not to keep him in power or to maintain him in power. But I think, you know, we're, we're looking at a period where I, I think the Russian people ought to get rid of Putin, not the United States, not John Bolton, not Tom Cotton, not anybody in this country, and not the CIA for sure. Um, one person called me after the show and said, well, they actually, this was a question on the show with Megna. Um, why can't we just send a cruise missile into Moscow with Putin's name on it? I said, well, first of all, that'd be a violation of international law, violation of the laws of warfare. And, and you just don't want to start that because other people have cruise missiles too. And by the way, you're more vulnerable than they are. I show you referring to a recent appearance you made on a radio program with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was a, a hero of the Trump impeachment saga, the first one when Trump was impeached for freezing some weapons to Ukraine while pushing Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. And you got into a bit of a testy exchange with Vindman, who is generally treated in the media with reverence as a as a hero. And he himself is from Ukraine and has been very vocal in supporting a hawkish policy towards Ukraine. He, he wants the U.S. to arm Ukraine even more than we currently are. He. Uh mentioned that on the show, and I took some exception to it. Um, he is, as you just described him, he is, uh, I call, a Ukrainian patriot. Uh, first thing I have problem with, with that is the same reason I have a problem with Israelis with dual citizenship. Uh, I don't like Ukrainian patriots screaming for the United States to sell more weapons, etc. Uh, this is just not the way business should be done in the world. Uh, it is the way it's done, though, sad, sad say. And I, I also, I didn't mention this on the show, but I, I had a real problem with what he did. Um, he was a serving member of the United States Army. He had his uniform on, for example, when he testified to Congress. And he was essentially testifying against, for political reasons in the Congress, his commander-in-chief. 
Uh, this is unethical to the maximum. He should never have been allowed to do that. He should have been told, okay, if you want to do this, you have to resign. Resign your commission and go before the Congress if you want to, but don't do it as a serving military officer and certainly don't do it in uniform. And that's why he did it. That's very unethical. And the hubris of the guy, I, I couldn't believe it because basically his his big complaint about Trump freezing these weapons to Ukraine was that, in his view, Trump was going against official U.S. policy, which was to support Ukraine in the proxy war against uh, Russia, against the Russian-speaking rebels in the East. But isn't it the president, <laughs> whether you like him or not, who sets U.S. policy, not bureaucrats like Vindman and other people who may not like it? It's supposed to be. Um, as I teach my students at Women Mary, however, there are many pressures on the president, not least of which are people like Vindman and people like the members of Congress who frankly have gone beyond their writ as far as I'm concerned in the last decade or so, who are secretaries of state. Uh, indeed, they get up and travel to the countries that are in question or dispute, and they visit them and come back and say, well, I've been there, and Blinken, you're wrong, or Powell, you're wrong. Yeah, this is, you know, we have, as Powell used to say, we have 535 secretaries of state. Um, this is not the way the founders envisioned this republic working, and yet we are allowing it to happen all the time. I'm worried right now about the pressure on Biden. Biden has the instincts. I know because we worked with Biden very closely when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We even went around Dick Lugar, the Republican, and worked with Biden because, as Powell said, Biden knows the issues. Um, and I'm worried about him. He knows right now that we should not be in this war in any sort of big way. Certainly no, no fly zones or anything like that. But we should very, very, and I said this to Meghna and Vindman, we should tailor our support so that it is no more than is absolutely necessary. He wants to pour things in there. He wants to send all kinds of, of weapons in there. No, but there are pressures on Biden. And these pressures are brought by people inside the administration, like Victoria Nuland. Vindman wants her to be the next secretary of state. Oh, my God, I, I can't imagine a worse choice, except maybe Madeleine Albright, God rest her soul. Um, but... Here we go with Tom Cotton on the outside, with General Breedlove on the outside. Breedlove was taking his motorcycle, gang, motorcycle gangs into places in as, as early as 06, 07, 08, and I think working with the CIA to arm those uh, neo-Nazis and others who were contesting Russian control in the ethnic Russian regions of Ukraine. So this is another man who's really been violating his, uh, his rights as a general officer, if you will. But I suggest he's probably been doing it in conjunction with the CIA. So we, we aren't, uh, he's got influences on him, Biden does. And these influences want regime change in Moscow. And they want it tomorrow morning. They wanted it yesterday. Just to clarify, by dear love, you're referring to Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6? No, this is, this is the former... Uh, command Breedlove. I'm sorry, I got the name wrong. Breedlove. Oh, my fault. I was my thinking fault. of Dearlove too. Breedlove. He's Breedlove. the general, Air Force general, who was in charge of the United States European Command for four years. I, he reminds me of Powell's old saying about never put an Air Force general in charge of anything but an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that um, these people want regime change. Uh, what did Biden mean? Uh, when he said about Putin, for God's sake, this man cannot be allowed to remain in power. Was that a Freudian slip? Was that a shooting from the hip? 
It was, was an extemporaneous remark. Uh, I think uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, confirmed that. But Tony did his best to walk it back and to say, you know, that that was his emotion. That was his passion. He genuinely feels this. I don't think President Biden is willing to accept the immediate deposing of the leader of Russia, unless it's done by the Russian people. If it's done by the Russian people, we should have nothing to say about it. You know, we can applaud, but <laughs> nothing to say about it in essence. Uh, these people like Bolton and others, they, they want him brought down by any means necessary. In fact, uh, they would probably be in favor of sending a cruise missile in there. You know, yeah. we did that in the Iraq war. We sent a, two B-2s. Both had 2,000-pound satellite-guided bombs, and they were to kill Saddam Hussein. Um, they went, and their bombs hit the target, and they killed 33 or 34 civilians at Dora Farms. Your intelligence is never as good as you think it is. He just wasn't there? They were, he wasn't there. And, and to think that the, during the 19-hour flight of these B-2s from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri to Baghdad, he was going to wait around? <laughs> I mean, he's got intel too, you know. <laughs> what do you make of uh, Russia's war strategy so far? There was a recent article in Newsweek magazine by Bill Arkin which quoted some U.S. officials, including one analyst with the Defense Intelligence Agency, who basically said that Putin has been, in, in the opinion of this analyst, has been restrained so far, focusing mostly on military targets. And their read on Putin's strategy was that Russia wants to leave room for negotiations here. Do you agree with that? And what do you make of Russia's military approach so far? We keep hearing in the U.S. that Russia has had a had its plans thwarted, that it wanted to decapitate the government in Kiev, but it wasn't able to because of fierce Ukrainian resistance. How do you read all that? I think it has gone uh, rather poorly for the Russians, not in the sense that they haven't achieved most of their objectives. I think they probably have, but in the sense that the conscripts um, don't quite do as well as they were expected to do. And that's just, you know, we had these conversations with the Russians in 91 and 92. We told them one of the things they needed to do was create an NCO Corps. They don't have any. So you have officers who have to go down to the front lines and act like they're NCOs. And that's why you have so many general officers, if the record is right in our media, being wounded or killed. But I think basically they've achieved what they wanted to achieve. And that's why I think negotiations should be able to take place now. Um, their main right, Colonel, what is what does NCO stand for? Uh, non-commissioned officers. Okay. Yeah, E6s, E7s, you know, the people who sort of run the thing. They don't have any. They, they, they simply have a different structure and a different way of running things. And it, it maybe could be said to be very powerful in the defense. It's not that powerful in the offense, because in the offense, you need a hell of a lot more coordination, cooperation between what is the tactical element and the operational element. In a defense, you're all together and you're fighting for your life. Clausewitz said the stronger form of warfare is defense, and he's right, but he also said it's a negative. That is to say, you're not gaining anything except maybe your own preservation. But the defense is a far stronger form of war, and if you're Ukraine, that's good. What do you think the United States' role should be uh, to the extent that it should have one in this conflict right now? Well, it shouldn't be as it is, as it is right now with those forces outside the presidency and maybe even the president himself to an extent. It is 
let's do everything we can to attrit Putin, to attrit his military, to do as much damage to him as we can. And let's get this over with and hope Putin falls and maybe even Putin will fall. Um, that's, that's their attitude. It shouldn't be that. It should be let's end this conflict because we have much more important matters to get to, not least of which is nuclear arms control. We've abandoned it not least of which, too, is the climate crisis. As the heads of delegation for both Ukraine and Russia to the IPCC meeting that delivered its report on 28 February, both said, brave man, that Russian, he condemned the invasion and said, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? We're fighting in Ukraine, at least in part, over the very things that are going to kill us all, fossil fuels. And I, I, I hope he's still alive when he got back to Moscow. <laughs> And what would it look like for the United States to be pushing for diplomacy or peace? What would that look like in terms of what uh, they'd be, the U.S. government would be doing and the military would be doing? Well, I think if, if Zelensky is playing things right now to gain maximum leverage before real talks start, I think we should just be backing him up, um, not militarily, uh, to the extent we are, yes, but no further, no further. Let's don't go, let's don't escalate at all. And, and let's let him say things like, oh, give me planes, give me this, give me this, and let the Russians think that we might do it. That's fine to bring pressure on the negotiations, but don't do it. Don't really do it. Just stay with him in terms of the negotiations and encourage him to do whatever he has to do to get in there and get the maximum leverage and, and, and get the thing ended. You mentioned arms control. So I'm curious your thoughts on how that has fueled this conflict, how that played into Putin's decision to invade. Since 2003, starting with the Bush administration, which you served under, John Bolton was instrumental in dismantling the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Yep. And since then, we've seen the demise of the uh, conventional forces in Europe treaty, another major arms control pact. Under Trump, the U.S. abandoned the INF treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of missiles in the U.S. and Russian stockpiles. Also, Trump also killed the Open Skies Treaty. How has that background played into this crisis? And I, I'm curious if you remember, was there any debate under the Bush administration over Bolton's genius idea to destroy the anti-ballistic missile treaty? You left out one. Trump almost killed New START. That's right. Had it not been for Putin and his openness to doing it because he understood this was the mother of all arms control agreements, uh, we probably wouldn't have done that. That's right. Um, but you're right. Under the Bush administration, when we got rid of the ABM treaty, it made Powell apoplectic. No one, no one had forewarned us. Um, and we all knew, he and I, particularly being military professionals, that ballistic missile defense was enormously expensive and probably technically infeasible. That is to say, 10 missiles coming at you, you might stop two. The other eight are probably going to get through and they have nuclear warheads. You're dead. You're very dead. So it was $80, $80 billion for some of these suites we were fielding in South Korea and so forth. It was nonsense. But Bush wanted to get rid of it. And he wanted to get rid of it in order to build ballistic missile defense. And so what Powell did is a counter. He And he sent Bolton. This was Machiavelli. And he sent Bolton to Moscow to do it. He developed the Moscow Treaty which was a two-page treaty that essentially picked up on the momentum that had been generated by the end of the Cold War, where we were actually destroying Russian warheads, helping them, 
And we, we agreed in that treaty to go down from what we were at at that point, which was roughly 15,000 apiece or so after the destruction. We were at 30,000 apiece when we started uh, to about 1,200. And that was going apace until we started doing what you just said. And Putin got scared. We got scared, I guess, because he was developing tactical nuclear weapon doctrine to use them. So we had to have counters. So we had to leave the INF tree to build that class of missile again. It's nonsense. It's insanity what we've done. People have forgotten what it was like to live in the Cold War. They've forgotten about escalation theory. You know, so the Russians actually call their theory escalate to de-escalate. What nonsense. You're firing a nuclear weapon to convince your enemy that you're serious enough to where he'll de-escalate. Okay, he's going to fire one back at you. I mean, that, we learned that during the Cold War. We learned it with India and Pakistan. Uh, we came very dangerously close in 2002 to an exchange. And when we started talking to Musharraf in Islamabad and his equivalents in Delhi, they began to understand that what we were saying was, you people are neophytes. You don't understand this. Let us explain it to you. They didn't even have permiss permissive action logs, PALs, on their nuclear weapons. That keeps, you know, two keys, keeps people from being able to access them in, in a dangerous way, at least. Uh, um, we just, we're in, a, we're, we're in a mess right now with regard to nuclear, weapon, nuclear weapons arms control. And we need to bring others in. We need to force Israel in. We need to force North Korea in. And when I say force, we need to make the deal so rich and sweet that they can't resist it. Um, and we need all nine countries that are weapons states in the regime that we build, it'll take a while, but we need them. We need China. We need the UK and France. We need all the nuclear weapon powers in a, a very close-knit group. And then we need to reinforce or replace the non-proliferation treaty so that it has more teeth. What made you, um, this is shifting gears a little bit, but it's, I think, related. What made you uh, change your view of the Iraq war, including your own uh, role in it? That's a good question. <laughs> it's fairly complex to answer it. I, I was actually, if you saw the movie Shock, Shock and All, I was the person called the source in that movie. I used former UPI reporter and then working for Knight Ritter, Joe Galloway, who died a few months ago. Uh, I used him to conduit my information and Knight Ritter was the only group of newspapers in America that really got it right. Um, and they got it right because Joe took what we said and wrote. And I wasn't the only contact he had. Karen Kiewitowski at the Pentagon was a contact. And, but we were, and, and in doing that and in going over it with uh, people at Knight Ritter and with Joe himself, uh, I, I began to understand how stupid it was. Um, I, I wasn't. I was at the point where, and I did, I wrote out, uh, dear Mr. President, I was a political appointee, so dear Mr. President, I resigned. I wrote out my letter and I put it in the central drawer of my desk. And then that was impacted really significantly when Powell thought he was gonna leave. Um, and I thought, well, we're in concert here because he had told me when I took the job as chief of staff, if I leave, you leave, you can't stay. You're a political appointee, just like me, if you take the chief of staff job and you have to leave. So I was elated. I wasn't the only one who was elated. 
the deputy secretary of state, Richard Armitage, when I walked into his office after the 2004 re-election of George W. Bush, looked at me and said, damn, I'm really pissed off. And I said, Rich, what's wrong? He said, we won. I, I said, that's counterintuitive. He said, I want out of here. I don't want to work for these Nazis. His term. Um, so it, yeah, there, were, there were a lot of us who wanted out. I just didn't have the courage to submit my letter. I, and my wife taught me out of it to a certain extent because she said, if you leave, there'll be no one left to protect his rear end. And I said, eh, you got a point. But... His rear right, end him being Powell. Colin Powell. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I wish, I look back on it now and I wish I had. I wish I had because at least I could put that on the wall and say, I left because it was so bad. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. So interesting. So knowledgeable. I love hearing from Lawrence Wilkerson. He's got uh, such a wealth of experience and insight. And I just love the range of stuff he talked about from Ukraine to stuff about Colombia and Venezuela I've never heard before. And then his own personal experience in terms of his own evolution and how he decided to speak out, which you can get in our member-only exclusive content at usefulidiots.substack.com. Yeah, so if you want to hear him talk about being visited by the FBI recently and why he was visited by the FBI and how he um, found the courage to speak out and what happened to him when he did, become members of our Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Again, the website is usefulidiots.substack.com, and we'll see you next week. Yep. And make sure you rate and review us on uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, make sure that you come to see us live Mondays at 10 a.m. at youtube.com slash useful idiots, where we do our uh, Monday morning live stream, where we react to the Sunday morning shows that we watch so that you don't have to. Then you can join us on Colin right after at 11 a.m. on Monday. Subscribe to us on YouTube so you never miss these streams. YouTube.com slash useful idiots. See you next week. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 